This is Vintage Broadcasting. The following is a study through the book of Philippians. My name is Frank Goss. I hope this study proves beneficial to you in the days to come. I thank you very much. Speaking about Philippians, we're going back into another study into Philippians, chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. I was not raised in a Christian home. Didn't have a Christian background. There were Christians in my family tree, but not many. My family was somewhat dysfunctional, and it was dominated by alcohol, anger, and chaos. It was more of a Darwinian atmosphere, meaning the survival of the fittest. Emotionally, you were on your own. The bills were paid, and we coexisted under one roof, that is true. Family life was not as terrible as one would imagine, but it was certainly not an Ozzie and Harriet existence. I was concentrated on one thing, and that was me. Once I was able to move about, I moved about quite a bit. It did nothing to find me several miles from home playing with some friends from school. I'd ride my bike to see them and ride my bike back home after dark, crossing a busy highway. I must have been, what, nine or ten years old, but I knew how to look out for myself, I thought. I grew up to be a selfish young man and had no concept about living for others. None. Never even heard it. There was really no sense of family unity, and my friendships were tenuous and shallow. I lied, stole, cheated, and I lived like I wanted to live from the time I was a small child. I was a wild child, a product of the 60s. Then Christ called my name after I graduated from high school. I was attending college, and a fellow named Dave Sevier handed me a gospel track and told me about Jesus Christ. I was interested, but by no means at that point in time was I converted. I began to look. I began to seek for answers. I even bought a Bible and I began to read it. Eventually, I did come to Christ at His beckoning. And truly, I was broken over my sin, and I repented, and I did believe. Now, contrary to what I hear so often, I did not have what I would call a dramatic, life-changing moment. No lights came on, and no band was playing. My mother had come to Christ a few years earlier, as did my sister, and I honestly attribute my coming to Christ a great deal to the fact that my mother prayed and Christ answered her prayers. So at the age of 19, I was born again, and life did change, dramatically, you could say, for what I was coming out of was pretty dramatic. I can't explain all the details uh, that were going on, but now I understand I'd been given a new start and a new life. My desires changed internally. I was still selfish. And I was still an ignorant young man, though. I was changed, but I was still clinging to what I knew. I had a hard time learning what it means to consider others better than myself, or to look out for the interest of others. I had never experienced that in my life. I still had the knack for putting myself first. God was a close second. And others, I didn't think about them that much. I read that we were to carry one another's burdens, and in this way you would fulfill the law of Christ. That's in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. But I had difficulty understanding these things. The idea of being a slave was repugnant to me. I was my own man and was not about to bow to anybody. But there was a twinge of conscience that I had had that I never felt before. There was something that I needed to learn. Paul said in the letter to the Romans, Honor one another above yourselves. 
We who are strong should bear with the failings of the weak and not be pleasing ourselves. Please your neighbor and build him up for his own good. Well, I'd read that. I had no clue what it meant. I had no clue how to do those things. And the more I read, the more I was seeing that I didn't fit in within these guidelines. My mind was molded in a different way. I had followed a different path for years and years. I'd cut my hair, and I began to attempt to dress better, cleaned up my language a bit, and stopped quite a bit of my sinful ways. I, I was progressing in Christ. My love for Him was real. But I was ignorant of the ways of God and the concepts that were contained in the Bible. I didn't come from a Christian background. Now, how do I learn to love others as Christ loves me? That was the question I had. One thing that troubled me was the constant awareness that I was being judged by my performance. The people in the church that I was attending kept me at arm's length. I didn't fit in. My reputation was known and my clinging sins were obvious. I smoked constantly. And to avoid judgment, I did what I could to hide this. But how do you hide stink? But this sense of judgment rode me every day. Today, I understand some of it was conviction of the Spirit of God. It was the work of sanctification beginning within me. It was the maturation of a young heathen convert. Believe me, I repented daily. I was convinced on many occasions that I had never been saved. So I would pray the sinner's prayer, God, please save me. I didn't know what else to do. God bore with me. He was patient. And he was more than kind in his dealings with me as I sat in his classroom. And the way I was seeing it, caring for my neighbor was at the heart of the gospel. But I was unable to perform that. I would help and I would do what I could, but the attitude behind what I was doing was not there. It was dead. I wasn't loving. I was trying to see some redeemable qualities within me, and I was discovering that there was nothing to find. And I'd been told and convinced as a child growing up that I was worthless and unwanted. And my father let me know that he was tired of dealing with me on several occasions. And my self-esteem was non-existent. I wanted to prove that I had value to myself, to my father, to my friends, and to God. I had a deep sense of pride that I felt not getting recognized. I had value and I had something to offer, and these things were boiling over within me for years. And now it's coming to the surface. It was like a pus from a festering boil. A horrible description, I know, but what better way can you say it? Read Ezekiel 28, and you see the description ascribed to Satan himself. He was proud. God made him in such a way and placed him in such a position. And somehow he began to think of himself as something more than what he was. He was proud of his beauty, and he wanted to be recognized. He made his heart to be like God's. He was so beautiful. He was the anointed cherub. He was blameless in all of his ways. He was found to be unrighteous, though, because of his pride. He became filled with violence, and he sinned. His pride demanded more and more and more, and his pride said that he was as good as God, the God who had created him. And his pride blinded him to the reality and to facts. His desires to rise burned within him. You see, he was better than others. He was better than what anybody imagined him to be, particularly those above him, particularly God. He was cast from the mountain of God because of this. His wisdom was corrupted, and he became a fool in his own imagination. As one thinks in his heart, that's the way he is, you know. And Satan is hated by all those in the world, by mankind. Satan is the dastardly being. But he sought to raise up an army, an army that sided with him. And this army, he hopes, will defeat God, and he will be able to take God's place. But this is something he'll never be able to do. 
His violence is terrible, and his lust for power and position is insatiable. His army is made up, made up of like-minded people. His soldiers all want to be higher than God. The problem with the army of Satan is that he is working within them to be what he wants to be, higher than God. So now he has a whole army of people who want to be higher than God. It's like herding cats. They have a leader, but they'll submit to no one, and they'll bow before no other gods. Why? Because they within themselves know that they are of great value, and they need to show the world, Satan and God himself, how great they are. And just like Satan has said, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will make myself like the Most High. That's how his followers feel as well. Donald Gray Barnhouse says this in his book called The Invisible War. Back in the story of Abram, we have a record of an incident revealing the inwardness of the name the Most High. Abraham was returning home after the battle with the kings and the deliverance of Lot. We read about Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem. He brought forth bread and wine. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Here is the key to the pride of Satan. God is revealed as El Elyon, the Most High God. And in his character, he is the possessor of heaven and earth. This is what Lucifer wanted to be. His rebellion was not a request for God to move over and make room that he might be able to share the throne of God. It was a thrust at God himself. It was an attempt to put God out so that Satan might take his place as the possessor of heaven and earth. Was this plan working? Well, today it sure looks like it is, doesn't it? In the early days as a Christian, it was very, very prevalent. Satan was bringing and has brought misery and torment to millions upon millions upon millions of people worldwide. His demons are busily at work, and Satan, being a created being, cannot be in more than one place at one time, so he has to call upon his followers, those who fell from heaven with him. The fundamental good of creation is found in fellowship with God, communion with El Elyon, the Most High God. Satan wants that adulation. He wants his values to be known and exalted in the eyes of God's creation. The character trait to recognize is that while men follow hard after Satan's ways, even when they're sold out completely to their ideas, they're still wretched and tormented individuals. Satan knows nothing of joy or peace, and consequently, nor do his followers. I was learning this by principles that I incorporated into my life as a small child. These things were coming to the surface. As a teenager, I was seeing what misery was all about. I understood what being tormented by bad ideas and people and situations, I understood what that was. And I was seeing just how wretched and wicked I truly was, and I was absolutely miserable. And there were times, I can admit in my Christian life, that there was exquisite joy. I knew that I was loved by God, and I was very, very thankful. Yet there was this thing within me that was tormenting me. I was told it was demonic and so on and so forth. I didn't know. I was looking at the law, the law of God, and I was trying to match up with it. And it was condemning me daily. I was like a blind man that Jesus touched. I saw initially men walking as trees. But praise be to God, Jesus touched me again. And my eyes were opened in such a way that these things have not troubled me now for quite some time. I'm free. I knew what to do and I wanted to do good, but I would find myself practicing the things that I didn't want to do. If you turn to Romans 7 and read it, you'll understand where I was. I was and am unable to do good. It's not within me. It's, I can't find it inside me. And I can honestly agree with the law of God now, though. 
I understand that my value is in and because of Christ. He is my hope and my salvation. Christ is my life. And the more I look inside, the more condemned I become. But Christ has set me free from the law that brings nothing but condemnation. If you want to know me, I'll tell you this right away. I am a sinner. Apart from Christ, and I always was and I always will be, apart from Christ, a sinner. These things will always war within me. The ideas and the thoughts and the attitudes. But they are the lies of the flesh and the temptation of Satan. I understand that. But fighting and warring against these things is a constant battle, right? The question comes within my head is, how do I learn to live for others? Who are you learning from? That's the big thing. Who, who's teaching you these things? Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. And he's a destroyer. His only desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. And he wants to destroy you and me. But this does not need to be. It's truth that teaches us how to live and how to live for others. Look to Jesus. Instead of exalting himself, he emptied himself of all pride and self-adulation. He did not make himself out to be something. He could have, but he didn't. He took on the nature of a servant, a bond slave. And yet he was God, fully God, in every respect. And yet he was fully man, in every respect. He humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Why did he do that? If you're a Christian, you begin to think about these things, right? Did he do it for personal gain or recognition? No, he did not. He did that for me. All for love's sake, Christ became poor. He gave me a throne for a manger and a sapphire paved court to walk on instead of a stinking stable floor. The cross is not a soothing religious symbol. It was at that time the cruelest means of suffering in the days of Christ. Christ led the disciples into Jerusalem, and on the way he stopped and he told them what was about to happen. He endured these dreadful things of being whipped, having his beard torn out, and having a crown of thorns pressed down into his head. But he denied himself the right to do what he could have done. He did all this for you and me. He could have considered just who he was and insisted on recognition and obeisance. But he didn't. He could have shown the world his true value. He could have snapped his fingers and stopped every bit of this. But he did not. He showed us, by example, how to live our lives for others. How to give beyond measure. How to bear with the weakness of others. How to be patient and kind when you have every right to rebel and shout out and resist. How to love when others are violent and doing physical harm to you. He did not open his mouth except to cry out in pain. When they, they nailed him down, he watched. I believe when the nail pierced his skin, he cried a cry that was heard throughout the halls of heaven. But he determined to do this for you and for me. He died for my sins so that I would not have to die. You see what living for others means? Do you see it? I still have a lot to learn. We'll always choose to live for ourselves. It's just part of our nature. When it comes to danger or doing without, I'll grab something for me. We'll always exercise what we've been taught is a human right. Freedom. Self-preservation. Equity. Flesh will always elect to be the deserving party. The first step in learning is to recognize fundamental truth. The fundamental truth is that we're proud. This is the foundation of sin. I think I'm right. I'm the most highly recognized person in my life. Why are we proud? 
Well, we put God down and we've exalted ourselves. God has to be somebody who's manageable and controllable. We believed a lie. We have the wrong perception about ourselves and about God. To see God correctly, you will see yourself in contrast. And before God, we are filled with sin. Peter, the rock, told Jesus, get away from me because I'm a sinful man. In Isaiah, when he saw God, he said, woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. The first step in living for others is to understand who God is. The second step is to understand who you are. And the third step is the imperative, one we tend to neglect within the church and within our own daily disciplines. The third step is daily fellowship with Christ. Christ is the source of our life, and we have to stay close to the source of life if we're to learn. He teaches us how to give and how to be what we're meant to be. How does he teach us? Not by whispers at night while we're asleep, and not simply by going to church. He teaches us these things through the word that he has given us, the word that we call the Bible. He teaches us these principles within that book. And if you want to learn them, you have to read that book. You must be convinced of all of this. Without him, you can do nothing. But in Christ and through Christ, I can do everything that he calls me to do, and I can be everything that he calls me to be. He gives me the strength and the understanding and the ability. Watchman Nee, a Chinese evangelist, tells about a Christian he wants to do in China. He was a poor rice farmer, and his fields lay high in the mountains. Every day he would pump water into the patties of new rice, and every morning he would return to his home and rest, and then he would come back and find that a neighbor who lived down the hill from him had opened the dike surrounding the Christian's field and let the water fall down into his own fields. For a while, the Christian ignored the injustice. But at last he became desperate and irritated and frustrated. He was starting to get angry. Well, he met and he prayed with other Christians and they came up with an idea. Trust God. He'll show you a way. The next day, the Christian farmer rose early in the morning and first filled his neighbor's fields. Then he attended to his own. And Watchman Nee tells how the neighbor subsequently became a Christian. And his unbelief was overcome by a genuine dem demonstration of Christian humility and Christ-like character. The man could have fought and hollered and screamed. He probably could have gone to the authorities, but he didn't. What would Christ do with that individual? The question you have to ask, if you're serious about walking with the Lord, can you live for other people? Yes, you can. How do you live for other people? Find out by reading God's Word. Will you live for other people? That's up to you. It's not only possible but it is at the core of the calling of all men who profess Christ. If we don't know how to live for others, we do know who to ask. We ask God for wisdom, and the Bible says he'll give us liberally, and he won't get on to you for asking. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally, and he won't chastise you for asking. If you want to do these things, ask the Lord. for following along in our study on Philippians and we hope that you continue as we continue with the study here. You are well appreciated and we hope that this has been of great benefit to you. Thank you very much.